Most folks? All right. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, you have come at the beginning of a new series of sermons that we have called Spirit-Filled Living. We began last week with a consideration of what the Bible teaches about who the Holy Spirit is. We were thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity. We were thinking about the third person of the Trinity who is himself fully God, is a person, not a force, and who is at work in both creation and in redemption in ways that are in partnership with the Father and the Son. And we were trying to make the case that our dependence upon the Holy Spirit is absolutely vital, absolutely necessary, because apart from Him, we will not become who we are meant to become in Christ. And apart from Him, we cannot do what we have been called to do in Christ. We want to consider this morning thinking about what it means to be Spirit-filled, or to live filled with the Spirit. And I want to remind us of something that we sort of mentioned last week, and that is most churches, most people in most churches will come to this topic with at least one of two suspicions. Some people will suspect that we should be experiencing more of God's Spirit than we have been. And other people will be suspicious that we have already gone too far in claiming to uh, experience the Spirit. And we point out that the problem with both of these views is that at some point they become based on experience rather than Scripture, that there becomes a sort of experience becomes a kind of functional authority in understanding questions about the Spirit and the Spirit's work in our lives. And, and I don't think that's intentional, but it does begin to work against the authority of the Bible. Now, the place where we see this come up most is on the topic of public praise and worship. That's one place where really different views of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives really comes to a, a head. So much so that you have some people who say uh, certain churches are, quote, dead because their view of the Spirit's and the Spirit's presence isn't, isn't there. And then you'll have the opposite. You'll have some people who will say that, that certain churches are out of control because their sense of the Spirit's presence isn't consistent with their own. So ironically, the person of the Holy Spirit who works most to create unity among God's people is often the source of significant disunity and conflict. That's a, that's a pretty good indication that all sides, we need to bring our mind back to the Bible, back to what the Bible says. And that's what we want to do. We want to have our views of the Spirit governed by the book that the Spirit wrote. It's kind of like saying you know someone whom you've never met, and that person has written an autobiography, but you don't want to read the autobiography. You're just going to go on what you know. Well, that's not a good way to know someone. The Spirit has written down a book about who God is, who He is, who the Son is, who the Father is, and how we're to relate to Him. We, we want to relate to Him according to what He said in the book. And I think this will lead us to a deeper and wider understanding of the Holy Spirit's presence and role in our lives. 
which is the aim of this sermon series. So we come then to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. I want us to organize our thoughts on three points here. This is the outline for the sermon if you're taking notes. Number one, do not be drunk with wine. Do not be drunk with wine. We'll spend just a few minutes there. Number two, do be filled with the Spirit. Do be filled with the Spirit. And then number three, show the Spirit in worship. Show the Spirit in worship. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. This is God's Word. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to understand your word. Illumine our minds, O Lord, and draw us close to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 18, the first part of verse 18 gives us our first point. Do not be drunk with wine. Now, our verses occur in the middle of a paragraph where Paul is contrasting certain things for the Ephesians believers. He's giving them a series of things not to do and things to do. So look at verse 15. He says there, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Contrasting a wise way of living versus a foolish way of living. Look at verse 17, the second contrast. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand the what the will of the Lord is. Again, contrasting a, a foolish, uh, rebellious way of living without regard to God's instruction with living according to God's will. Verse 18 continues the, the, the contrast. The first part of verse 18 gives us a, a negative command. He's telling us not to do something. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, in the ancient world and in our world, drunk means the same thing. It means to be filled with a different kind of spirit. It means to be under the control of a substance. In this case, alcohol, but it could be any substance. It could be drugs, it, it could be pornography, it could be vain entertainment, it could be anything that, that we lose faculty with, that we lose control with, that we lose our senses with, and it begins to affect us and to shape us and to determine our behavior. Paul maybe mentions this because in many of the ancient cults in, in Ephesus and other places, uh, wine was a part of pagan worship. So they would drink themselves to drunkenness and they would work themselves into a frenzy. And Paul may be contrasting now Christian worship with pagan worship. But in any case, drunkenness is widely understood to be a sin. So the pagan philosopher Isocrates said, for when the mind is impaired by wine... It is like chariots which have lost their drivers. The soul stumbles again and again when the intellect is impaired. So from pagan writers to the Bible, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, uh, there the, the Bible says, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler. 
And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Again, so everyone from pagan philosophers to Bible writers warn us that drunkenness is a kind of foolishness that destroys our ability to live well. Such a life is sinful. We don't use this word much in English anymore, but Paul says it's debauchery. In some words, you just love the way they sound. That's just debauchery. <laughs> debauchery means excessive, excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. In other words, it's living according to the flesh. Thierry read Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26 for us earlier in the service. And you remember, Paul starts with the works of the flesh, which are evident, a long list of sinful ways of living, in the middle of which he mentions drunkenness. So this is the way of the flesh. This is debauchery. This is, this is the way of sin, not of Christ. And the Christian must have nothing to do with such things. So 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4, Peter writes to the saints there. He says, the time that is past, meaning the time of the old life of sin, suffices. So you spend all the time you should spend in your life of sin if you're now a Christian. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of, here's our word, debauchery. And they malign you. In other words, Peter's saying, if you're a Christian, you ought to probably have, not probably, you ought to have the kind of life that when your partners at work say, come on, it's happy hour down the street. Or your friends say, hey man, the club is... It's a new club in town and it's popping. You probably ought to have the kind of life where they're surprised because you go, no, nah, go ahead, dog. I'm good. I don't care how cheap the drinks are at happy hour. I ain't trying to get drunk with you. I don't care how popping the club is. I ain't trying to go and do what people go to the clubs to do. Peter says the time for that is past. We don't give in to the flood of debauchery if we're Christians. Now, what this is saying is the gospel has made a change in our lives. All it really means is that Jesus has come into our lives as Christians, and the old things we used to do, we don't do anymore. And, and in fact, he is, as uh, our brother Day prayed a moment ago, he's made those things sour to us. We hate them. We don't like them. They, they repulse us. We, we feel terrible when we give ourselves into them. We are convicted. We have a sense of shame that we didn't used to have. And all of that is because the presence of Christ is in our life. It's because we've been given a new heart. And that old life is contrary to this new heart. Jesus changes us. Really and truly. And so a simple sentence like, do not be drunk with wine, sounds like really good news to us, like the right way to live to us. And you may be here as a, as a person who's not yet a Christian, and that sentence sounds restrictive to you. It, it sounds stodgy and stiff and judgmental. You, you may hear that sentence and think, 
well, that, that doesn't sound like freedom. I want to do what I want to do. I, I want you to understand that we all used to think that way. And I want you to understand that the way you're thinking is contrary to the God who made you. He didn't make you to waste your life in debauchery. He didn't make you to give yourself over to all these kinds of passions and sins and excesses. You know, you know what he made you for? He made you for himself. He made you so that you would know him and enjoy him. And in coming to know him and enjoy him, those false pleasures would be exposed for the deceptions that they really are. And that you would have a joy and a delight and a peace and a genuine freedom to now worship God and to serve God and a freedom not to give yourself over to those other things. Jesus liberates us from this. In fact, he saves us from it because if we stay in it, the Bible teaches God's judgment is going to come against us and the whole world who lives this way, that God's wrath will be turned up on us if we die in our sins and meet him as his judge. So we all need a savior and Jesus is that only savior, the only one who died to pay the penalty for our sins. The only one who satisfies God's anger so that he's no longer angry with us if we believe in Christ. Instead of angry, we are accepted. Instead of failed and at fault, we are forgiven and free. Instead of condemned, we're cared for and loved. That's the good news of the Bible. That's the good news of Christianity. And it's the news we offer you this morning. Do not be drunk with wine. Do not be carried away by sin. Instead, repent. Believe in Jesus. Have your sins, all of them, wiped away. Find righteousness and joy and satisfaction with the God who made you through faith in his son. If you want to know more about that, We'd love to tell you more about that. See us after the service. Come up after the sermon. We'd love to answer any questions you have, pray with you, study the Bible with you, so you might have this gift of God's free love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. First thing, do not be drunk with wine. Second thing, do be filled with the Spirit. That's the contrasting command in verse 18. See it there? But be filled with the Spirit. It's a simple command, but it's been the source of a lot of debate and a lot of acrimony. And that's partly because, I don't know if you know this, but this is the only place in the Bible where this command exists. Only once in the Scripture are Christians called to be filled with the Spirit as a command. And it's been confusing for many people because the surrounding verses don't really give us like A, B, C, D of how to be filled with the Spirit of God. Did you notice that? And so we have to ask ourselves and answer a couple of basic questions before we can go further. What does this command mean? And how is this command fulfilled? What does it mean and how is it fulfilled? Well, we've got to do a little grammar. If you let me geek out on the grammar, I don't know why we just closed out the lights, but you know... Uh, it's not going to get that dramatic. <laughs> All right, let there be light. <laughs> do everything according to the word, brother. We've got to do a little grammar, right? I love the way one scholar summarized this verse. He says, the mood is imperative. 
The verb is plural. The voice is passive. The tense is present continuous. I know y'all are like, man, we, I, I didn't graduate or I'm, I ain't in class. What's all this? Well, we got to understand what's actually being said here. The mood is imperative. That simply means it's a command. It's not an indicative. It's not a statement of fact. It is a command that something be done. Something's being required here. The verb is plural. That means that this command is addressed to the entire church as a church together. It's not a command to individual Christians. That's its significance. So the requirement of this command must be fulfilled by Christian churches together. The verb is plural. Oh, I just said that, didn't I? The voice is passive. The voice is passive. It means this verb, this is something being done to the church, not something the church is doing. Right? So an active verb, an active sentence might be something like this. John pushed Jim. John is the one who is taking the action. John is the the agent in that verse uh, or sentence. In a passive sentence, we might read like this, Jim was pushed by John. In that passive construction, something is happening to Jim. Jim is not doing the thing himself. So this filling with the Spirit is something done to the church instead of being done by the church. And the tense is present continuous. This means that the action of being filled, it happens at one point and is to be repeated continually into the future. So if we were to put this together and to maybe put this in our own words, to paraphrase it in our own words, we might put it like this. The church together must allow the Holy Spirit to keep on filling them always. That's a command. The church together must allow the Holy Spirit to keep on filling them always. That's what the sentence means. And this way of understanding the command has some implications, doesn't it, for how we understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The first implication is this, that life in the Spirit is not primarily oriented to the individual, but to the whole church. Paul's pneumatology is connected to his ecclesiology. Wherever Paul talks about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, he almost always has in view the doctrine of the church. Think, for example, about 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, where Paul talks about um, spiritual gifts. And, And we go there and we think about the gifts of the Spirit, but the entire concern there is that the church itself be organized and conduct itself in such a way using the gifts to build up the whole, not the individual. We're getting the same thing here in Ephesians chapter 5. So if we come to the notion of be filled with the Spirit, thinking about individual experience, then we are making a significant mistake. Here's the second thing. Any attempt at teaching what Christians can do to be filled or to fill themselves misunderstands this command. We are not the actors in this verse. This happens to us, not by our design. And think about it. How can a human being fill themselves with God? That ain't in our power. Some of us can't get full at breakfast, much less full of God. God must fill us 
Now, we should pray for his filling. We should desire the Holy Spirit's filling, but we cannot achieve it or manipulate it or produce it by our own agency. We must, as the old saints say, wait on the Lord. We must tarry until he comes sovereignly. So how is this command filled then? Well, to understand this, we have to keep going with our grammar lesson. We need to make a decision about the prepositional phrase there that's translated in our English versions with, with the Spirit. That's the English translation of a Greek phrase, in pneumatikai, meaning preposition, Spirit. But that preposition can be translated three ways. It can be translated in the Spirit, so that Paul is saying, be filled in the Spirit, in which case the Spirit is the sort of realm or the area or the arena of the filling. Now, that's an idea that Paul expresses pretty clearly in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. If you want to, keep your finger in Ephesians and turn over to the next book or so, to Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For Paul has this very idea of fullness in mind, and, and, and this same phrase is translated with the preposition in. Paul writes there, for in him, that is Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled not with, but in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So here in Colossians 2, this notion of fullness occurs in the spirit, in the realm of the spirit. Uh, in, the, in the sort of arena of the Spirit, not with. So we could maybe translate Ephesians 5 that way. Well, there's a second way. That preposition can be translated with the word by, in which case the Holy Spirit is not the arena of the filling, but he is the agent of the Spirit, uh, of the filling, excuse me. So we are to be filled by the Spirit. He's the one doing the filling. And if we translate it that way, the Spirit would not be the substance of the filling. And we have to ask ourselves a question, what is the filling then if we translate it with the preposition by? And we might go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. Some commentators think that this filling is a reference to maturity. Ephesians 4, 13 says this, Certain gifts have been given to the body for building up the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. So the idea would be that the Spirit, as the agent, works to make this maturity happen, brings us to full maturity in Christ. Or thirdly, the translations which we have in most English translations, be filled with the Spirit. If we translate it with the Spirit, then the Holy Spirit is not the sort of area of the filling, and He's not necessarily the agent of the filling. The Holy Spirit, if you'll allow this term, is the substance of the filling. It is what is poured into us. He is what invades our lives. And that idea is expressed a couple times in Ephesians. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul writes there, And he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, notice, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul has already said that the church is the fullness of Christ or is filled out by Christ, the, the Son of God. Or Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. Notice there, slightly different um, uh, phrasing or, or topic, but the same idea. No, he, he prays, Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I think it's interesting that when you put those three texts together, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Ephesians 3, 19, Ephesians 5, 18, that we have a pretty Trinitarian understanding of fullness. That Paul is, in some sense, praying or teaching that Christ fills the church, Ephesians 1. That he's praying that the fullness of God, the Father, would, would fill us in Ephesians 3. And here now he's commanding in Ephesians 5 that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. So in some sense, what we have here is a vision across Ephesians that we have communion with the entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we derive our fullness from, from the fullness of God himself, that the Father lives in us, that the Son lives in us, that the Spirit lives in us, and that we should, in some sense, actively experience or seek that fullness. We're filled by God the way water fills a cup. Filled by God, the way air fills this room. And so we have to make a choice about how to render this preposition. I choose to use all three. We might put it all together in a command wherein the Spirit is the realm in which we are filled, as we saw in Colossians 2. He's also the agent who fills us because the construction here is the passive voice, and he is also the substance who fills us. So we could revise our paraphrase to put it this way. Together as a church, be continuously and repeatedly filled in, by, and with God the Holy Spirit. That's what we're being called to. And the question becomes, how is that shown? How do we know when a church is filled with the Spirit? How do we know when the Spirit's at work among us? Well, verses 19 to 21 has five participial phrases. Five phrases with a word that starts with I-N-G. And those five phrases are really Paul's way of defining or showing to us what this filling looks like when it happens. Notice in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's really striking that immediately after the command, Paul launches into descriptions of worship, right? So this is given to the church as a whole, and it's meant to be expressed in the worship of the church as a whole. And there are three things to, to sort of check out here, three things about these five participial phrases. Number one, notice the, the instruments of worship. The instruments of worship must be, in every church, the mouth and the heart. It's great that we have all the accompaniment, pianos, drums. I wouldn't even care if we had a gazoo up here. 
Bring, make a joyful noise with everything, with string instruments, with drums, with, with whatever. But, but the principal instruments in Christian worship is not the accompaniment. It is the heart and the mouth. If we are being filled with the Holy Spirit, the most obvious demonstration of the Spirit's filling in a congregation is singing. And not just singing into your chest, lip syncing, but singing and making melody with your heart. It is singing that comes from the soul. It is, it is singing that erupts up out of a heart that is itself turned toward God. It is the offering of the soul to God that, that gives voice to that offering in the songs that we sing. We don't ever want to be a church about whom it could be said, these people what? Praise me with, but there are from me. We don't ever want to be a church about whom it could say, these people praise me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. God wants the heart and the mouth. He doesn't want us mumbling into our shirt. He wants us singing out from a heart that really does love him and adore him. Or, now, check it out. If we're singing loudly and making all kinds of racket, but it's just a show, or it's emotional manipulation, or our hearts are somewhere else, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's not what the Spirit produces in His people. It may be a great performance. It, it, it may be a slamming choir. It may be an awesome orchestra, whatever. But technical artistry and performance, though important, are not signs of the Spirit's presence. What happens in your heart and my heart and comes out of our mouths is the sign of the Spirit's presence. Beloved, let me just sort of apply this real quickly. Get a good night's sleep on Saturday. Rise early and pray for the gathering and our worship together. Come to the gathering with a sense of expectancy that God will be here because he will and we will meet with him. Ask him to make us ready, make you ready and all the other saints ready to commune with him? It may be that we are quenching the spirit on Saturday night after 10 because we're up watching Netflix or doing whatever we're doing and we're not readying ourselves for the Lord's day. So we come in here with wet wood. And, and then we want Amos and the praise team to be spectacular because we got to burn all that wetness out of us before we can catch fire. That ain't Amos' job. That ain't my job. That's your job before you get here. Go to bed. Get a good night's sleep. Rise early. Pray and expect to meet God here and sing to him with a heart that's really devoted to him and sing out to him like your heart is devoted to him. When that's happening among us, that's when the Spirit is here. That's when we're being filled. That's the evidence, the first evidence that Paul gives us. The instruments are our heart and our mouth. Number two, public worship ought to be a two-way conversation. 
It's a two-way conversation. Notice in verse 19 again, we are addressing one another. That's surprising, isn't it? Our brothers and sisters in the worship assembly are, are one of the audiences that we are engaging with in worship. We can call that the horizontal direction, the horizontal dimension. This means that whenever we have the attitude that, that we don't need or want anybody else while we worship, we are disobeying the Bible and not in the Spirit. We're meant to speak to each other as we sing. This is a ministry of the Word. This is why what we sing is important. This is why Amos spends the time that he spends selecting songs, thinking about the content, and, and bringing into the service content that fits the Scripture. Because we are preaching to each other as we sing, and we are meant to be built up by each other as we sing, verbally and non-verbally, in the lyrics that we're singing and the gestures and the expressions that we make in worship. I sit where I sit so I can watch uh, Peter and, and my brother uh, worship, Derek. Because Peter be doing a little Calypso thing going on, and Derek, Derek do his thing. I'm like, okay, now they talking to me. I can, you know, I can worship now. You ever had the experience of, of looking around and seeing how many hands are raised? You, you, sometimes you're looking for encouragement. And that raised hand is a statement. It's okay to be free. It's okay to praise him. It's okay to offer yourself up to him. And so we are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, don't know, nobody know what psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs mean. There's some people who say three different things. There's some people who say it's all the same thing. We're going to sing everything that glorifies God and edifies the church. So if you, this is where you get blended worship as far as I'm concerned. Some contemporary stuff, some traditional stuff, some really old stuff, some stuff Amos make up while he's up here. We're going to sing whatever edifies the church and brings glory to God. So this is a conversation that's happening on the sort of horizontal, but at the same time, now look at the next phrase, singing and making melody this time who? To who? To the Lord with your heart. We can call this the vertical dimension. The same time that we address each other, we're also in various kinds of songs addressing our hearts to God, lifting ourselves up to God. Now, there's a, there's a mistake to make in both directions. We shouldn't make it. We should not overly verticalize the public service. What we do when we gather is we're not 150 people in here each having an individual quiet time in kind of a silo just up to God. We are also speaking to one another. This is why you should do what Pastor Dennis does sometimes as he sings. He looks around and he makes eye contact and he smiles and he nods because he's just affirming that truth that we're singing and if you've ever locked eyes with him, you find yourself nodding and smiling and affirming the same truth. We, we don't want to verticalize the service in a way that rules out the horizontal. But now we also don't want to horizontalize the service and lose sight of God. 
So we don't be so preoccupied with what's happening with each other. Did a baby make a sound? Did she hit that note right? I don't really like this song. And why he raising his hand? We don't want to be so sort of concerned about the horizontal that we forget we're in the presence of the living God. And so we are to be worshiping in at least those two directions. You ever had that sense in public worship? Everyone around you was really engaged. And as a consequence, you felt yourself connected with others and drawn up into the presence of God. That's not just some goosebumps or, or a particularly happy morning. That's the church being filled with the Spirit of God. That's the church being filled with the Spirit of God. And if we're conscious of it, we'll have more of the Spirit. We'll enjoy Him more. If we're looking for that and expecting that, we'll, we'll find that more often. Now, here's the third thing to observe here. That Spirit-filled worship includes the attitudes now of thanksgiving and reverent submission. Thanksgiving and reverent submission. Thanksgiving in verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Truthfully, beloved, I don't know if it's possible to genuinely worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit without thanksgiving. I mean, how, maybe you can explain it to me later how that would work. How you could come into God's presence and attempt to praise Him while ungrateful to him. Now, don't get me wrong. I also think it's an incredible act of faith to praise God despite periods of ingratitude and bitterness. So don't stop pressing into his presence. Don't stop gathering with the saints. Don't stop worshiping. Just realize that there's something you need the Spirit to do in your heart in giving you a spirit of thanksgiving. Let God, the Holy Spirit, address your heart. Let him root out our selfishness. Let him root out ingratitude, entitlement, bitterness, and the like. The Spirit can do that. And he will often do it in the assembly of the saints. He can even do that as you sing. In the middle of a song. If we use our hearts as instruments raised up to God, the Holy Spirit will tune it to thanksgiving. If ever you have been filled with thanks to God for your salvation, for his blessings in your life, for the joy of knowing him, then you have been filled with the Spirit of God because he produces that thanksgiving. Now, he also produces an attitude of reverent submission. That's what we see in verse 21. Paul writes there, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, that theme of submission opens up really um, the rest of the letter down to chapter 6 around verse 9, but it's included here as one of the five participles that define what it means for a congregation to be filled with the Spirit. It's shown in submitting to one another. Part of our worship, notice, out of reverence for Christ, out of respect for Christ, out of adoration and fear of the Lord, part of our worship is submitting or putting ourselves under our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, this is interesting to me. 
It's interesting because the one place most Christians feel like they should express their preferences is singing and music. We like what we like. And we want to sing what we like. People choose their church families based upon the music, based on their preferences for music and singing. So this is the place where we can be tempted to be pretty self-centered. And that's at odds with the Spirit's work in our life. If we're filled with the Spirit as a congregation, one of the ways it will show is in thinking of others more highly than we think of ourselves. It will show in submitting to each other, not only in times of public praise, but in our everyday relationships with each other as well. Submission is a funny thing. We all know it's good, but we usually don't want to be the ones who do it. Our pride gets in the way. Our self-centeredness gets in the way. I mean, we're okay with being equals with others, but we don't want to be under anybody. I love the way Henry Beck put it. I don't know who that is, but he's the one who said it. He says, the defect with equality is we only desire it with our superiors. Nobody want to be equal down. All trying to go up. Nobody wants to be beneath others. But beloved, this is one of the things the gospel does. It it turns sort of worldly conceptions of power and privilege upside down. So in the Greek world into which Paul writes, uh, authority and power and status were valued above all things. Honor was the great value of the ancient Greek and Roman world. But here now, Paul teaches us a different way, that in the kingdom, when we have come to Christ, he flips that on his head and says things like this, that he who would be greatest among you would be servant of you all. And so it becomes not about power and privilege. It becomes not about my preference. It becomes about dying to self and humbling self and submitting to others out of reverence for Christ. Anytime you have a congregation of sinners redeemed by Christ submitting to each other, deferring to each other, preferring one another over themselves, You had better believe the Spirit of God is at work in that congregation. Write it down. Make it plain. Look for that evidence. Not the the supernatural and unusual. Look for something more profound and difficult like submission. So our attitudes in worship are to be thanksgiving and reverent submission. So let me try to make a couple of applications. Remember we said last week that there are two suspicions in most churches, wherever we talk about the Holy Spirit. There's some people who are suspicious that we should be enjoying the Holy Spirit more. And there are some people who are suspicious that we've gone too far in the name of the Holy Spirit. Now, you remember last week I said that both of them have some things right, and perhaps both of them have some things a little bit off. Now, when you think about those suspicions in the context of worship, they give rise to two corresponding problems. One group we might call stereotypically the frozen chosen. Anybody ever heard of them? 
The other group we might call the charismaniacs. <laughs> but neither group is completely correct. The frozen chosen, God bless them, they love order. And they're right to do so. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40 says, all things should be done decently and in order. And in context, Paul is talking about the worship assembly of the Corinthians, which has gotten so out of hand, he has said to them, it's better that you don't even meet. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, Paul writes there, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So this is, this is important, and this is typical of people coming out of traditional and conservative, maybe reformed settings. They, they may be correct to emphasize order and understanding, but perhaps they go too far in making worship all about order and understanding. Perhaps they go too far in fearing emotion and expressiveness. Listen, beloved, we, we, we giggle and it's fine, but we should be embarrassed if we are ever referred to as the frozen chosen. <laughs> Nothing should fire us up like the fact that God dwells in us and we get to know him and we get to love him and we get to worship him. If, if we come from conservative, traditional, reformed backgrounds, <laughs> we need to learn something from our Pentecostal and charismatic brethren about the Spirit's necessity in our lives and, and about an expressiveness that is appropriate to the Spirit's presence in our lives. Fear, or excuse me, emotion is a good gift from God. And if we are to worship God with all of our hearts, all of our mind, all of our strength, beloved, that means we worship Him with all of our emotion too. Now our Pentecostal and charismatic friends have some things correct. Again, the emphasis on the necessity of the Holy Spirit seems to me to be good and biblical. Their instinct that the Spirit's presence should produce joy and strength in our lives seems to me to be correct. Their sense that something is wrong, perhaps even dead in a congregation, without the Holy Spirit filling it, it seems to me is right. But at the same time, my Pentecostal and charismatic friends, just as our traditional friends can be too formal, you can be too disorderly and unscriptural in worship. Look again at Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. Notice there that there is no mention of emotion in that text. The closest you get to it is making melody with your heart, which I assume probably uh, includes joy, but that's as close as the text comes. Uh, but in Pentecostal and charismatic circles, there can be an emphasis on driving emotion rather than letting the truth in the hands of the Spirit create whatever emotion the Spirit wants to work in His people. Now, here's how I think you can tell people are tempted toward emotionalism rather than emotion. Three things. An emotion reaction, emotional reaction is the goal of whatever they're doing. We're not to aim at emotion as the goal. We're meant to aim at glory. That's the goal. Number two, the emotional reaction they're aim at, aiming at usually is one thing, joy or happiness. 
But beloved, where the Spirit produces emotion in a congregation of any size, several kinds of emotional reactions can and should be going on at the same time. The the person who just got the cancer diagnosis should maybe be feeling a lament before God. And and the person who has has some significant positive news maybe is more inclined to gratitude before God. The person who is struggling with sin shouldn't be feeling sort of joy as if nothing's wrong. They should probably be feeling conviction. And the person who's had some victory in sanctification should likewise be feeling some kind of fading conviction for the sin as they look to the the, the supply of Christ in gratitude and thanksgiving, joy. We're not all the same people. We're not all going through the same thing. And so if we're going to have an authentic emotional encounter with God during the worship, that means whatever emotion is happening should be particular to what we're going through. You tracking with me? Emotionalism tries to squeeze us all into the same emotional reaction where a spirit-given response to the truth will have us all feeling what's appropriate to the spirit's work in our life at that time. You with me? And that brings us to a third thing. Well, you can tell the difference between emotionalism and emotion because truth-driven, Bible-driven, gospel-driven, spirit-driven emotion and worship has an intentional place in it for the minor key, for lament, for songs of sorrow. You know, a third of the, about a third of the book of Psalms is lament. This is David and the other psalm writers complaining to God, saying, why God? Rehearsing their grievances to God as a way of turning their hearts to God in faith. And in much of the Western church, it's just no place for lament. We're just all triumphant all the time. And nothing but victory. We're too blessed to be stressed. But you know you're behind stress. <laughs> so we, we want to, I think, in keeping with the Scripture here, we, we want to sort of focus ourselves on the truth. We want to focus on leading people to the truth, and we want to pray and let the Spirit do what He wants to do in the lives of His people. We don't want to manufacture things. We want to let God produce in us what He wishes. Because keep in mind, this feeling is passive tense. It's God who does it. And most what we do is ask Him to do it in us. So we should bring this to a close. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, in Ephesians 5, the one place where we find that command, there's no reference to supernatural displays of the, of the Spirit's work. And maybe your mind runs to Acts. And I would just remind you that Acts is a book of history recording unique historical events. I don't think that Acts is meant in that way to be a pattern for everything we expect today. Here, what we have emphasis on in terms of the Spirit's work in filling the church is the fact that He's filling all of us together. And as He fills all of us together, it gets expressed in heartfelt singing. It gets expressed with melody in the heart. It gets expressed with submission to one another. 
And I want to suggest to you that those things are not to be thought of as trivial or light or insignificant. But those things, if they are evidences of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit in our life, they're meant to be treasured. They're meant to be celebrated. They're meant to be made note of. So, next Saturday and every night, get a good night's sleep. Come early. Come expectant. Pray for the service. Pray for your hearts. Pray for the hearts of our brothers and sisters. If we're going to live deeply spirit-filled lives, we will all have to forget about what we've been used to. We will, by God's grace, have to tune our hearts to the Word of God, what it actually says, and find new ways of keeping in step with the Spirit. And I think as we tune our hearts to God's Word, we'll find our hearts in tune with each other. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you that he is your gift to us along with your son. We thank you that he preserves us until the day of our salvation when we have it in full and your kingdom has come. And we thank you that he is ours to enjoy, to fellowship with. And we do pray for for him to fill us more often, more powerfully, than he has to this point. And we pray, O oh Lord, to know him and to walk with him and to keep in step with him, not only when we gather, but also when we scatter. Grant us, O oh Lord, we pray, the, the joy that comes from, from your spirit. And grant us hearts of thanksgiving, submission to one another, as we praise you, our glorious God, and Jesus, our matchless Savior, in the power of your spirit. Do this for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.